Could Jesus have sinned? Now, we realize and we know for certain that he did not sin, but did he even have the capability of sinning? Hi, I'm Dr. Greg Ammons, and welcome to Truth 101, a podcast where we talk about aspects of systematic theology, and we're now looking into our 200 series in the person of Jesus. In our 100 series of podcasts, we saw the nature of God, the attributes and characteristics of God. And in the 200 series, we have now begun looking at the person and the nature of Jesus. And we're looking at the first six podcasts of the 200 series, 201 through 206, on the persons of Christ, both his humanity and his deity. And we will wrap up his humanity in this 203 episode in looking at Jesus and the possibility of sinning. Now, we realize that Jesus was sinless. There's no doubt whatsoever. The Bible makes that very clear. Jesus never sinned. He was sinless. In our last podcast, we looked at some of the weaknesses and limitations that he placed upon himself, according to the Kenosis passage in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, where Jesus limited himself. He had he had the weaknesses of a human body and the weaknesses of a human mind and a human soul and human emotions. People saw Jesus only as a man, especially in his hometown of Nazareth. And we look at the end of the last podcast on the sinlessness of Jesus, and we realize that he was tempted, but he never sinned. Now, in this podcast, we're going to explore that thought just a little further and ask the question, was it possible for Christ to have sinned? Some people argue for what's known as the impeccability of Christ, in which the word impeccable means not able to do something, not able to sin. So the doctrine of impeccability means that Jesus did not even have the capability of sinning. It wasn't even a possibility for him to act upon because of his divine nature. But that raises other questions. If you say that Jesus uh, didn't even have the capability of sinning, that raises more questions. For example, the Bible says that he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. How could he be tempted to sin like I'm tempted to sin if it wasn't even possible for him to yield to the temptations? But here's a better question. If Jesus did not even have the possibility of sinning, then what was going on out in the wilderness whenever Satan came and tempted him after 40 days in the wilderness? In fact, the temptations were so difficult for Christ and so agonizing for Christ that Luke tells us when they were over, angels had to come minister to him. What was going on out there so severely that angels would have to minister to him if he didn't even have the capability of giving into the temptations? So was Jesus play acting out there? Was it a charade? Were were the temptations in the wilderness simply a charade that he was going through because he didn't even have the possibility of sinning? So these questions come up when you talk about 
the impeccability of Christ. And as I said, some people argue for the impeccability of Christ that he was not able to sin. Others object that if Jesus were not able to sin, his temptations could not have been real. And how can a temptation be real if a person being tempted is not able to sin anyway? So I want us to look at both sides of this and come down to a conclusion that, that I feel what Scripture teaches. And so let's look at the, uh, at, at the aspects of the impeccability of Christ. I think in order to begin answering these questions, we have to distinguish what the Bible clearly affirms on the one hand and what is the nature of possible inferences on the other hand. We know for certain the Bible clearly affirms Jesus never actually sinned. We know that for certain. He never, ever once sinned. So there should never be a question in our minds on this fact. But it also affirms that Jesus was tempted and that the temptations were very real temptations. Luke chapter 4 verse 2 tells us that. So if we believe Scripture, and we do, that, then we must insist that Christ in every respect, as Hebrews 4.15 says, in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So if our speculation on the question of whether Christ could have sinned ever leads us to say that he was not truly tempted, then we reached a wrong conclusion. Or if it leads us to say that he, he, he did sin, we reached a wrong conclusion because he did not. So let's start to try to answer some of these questions. Now, some people have looked at this being a contradiction in Scripture. But I don't think it's a contradiction at all. The Bible does not tell us that Jesus was tempted and Jesus was not tempted. That would be a contradiction. It, the Bible tells us Jesus was tempted. The Bible tells us Jesus was fully man. And the Bible affirms Jesus was fully God. And that God cannot be tempted. So we know all these facts. So the combination of teachings from Scripture leads open the possibility that as we understand the way Jesus' human nature and divine nature work together, maybe we can come up with an understanding of how it may have happened. Now, let me, let me make uh, some, uh, some observations uh, so far, uh, and, and let's continue on. At this point, we're passing beyond the clear affirmations of Scripture. I just showed you, told you what clear, Scripture clearly affirms. But what is it in our minds now appropriate to conclude? One, if Jesus' human nature existed by itself, independent of his divine nature, then it would have been a human nature just like what God gave to Adam and Eve. It would have been free from sin, but nonetheless able to sin. Therefore, if Jesus' human nature existed by itself, then there was abs the abstract theoretical possibility Jesus could have sinned. But he had a human nature, I mean a divine nature as well. Second thought, Jesus' human nature never ever existed apart from union with his divine nature. Now think about that. They were never separate. From the moment of Jesus' conception, he existed as both truly God and truly man as well. 
Both his human nature and his divine nature existed while united in one person. Here's a third thought. Although there were some things, such as being hungry or thirsty or weak, that Jesus experienced in his human nature, those were not experienced in his divine nature because his divine nature would never get hungry, it would never get thirsty, it would never get tired, but his human nature did. Nonetheless, an act of sin would have been a moral act that would apparently have involved the whole person of Christ. So therefore, if he had sinned, it would have had to involve both his human and divine natures because they were never separate. And we know that, that his divine nature could not have sinned. Here's a fourth thought. If Jesus as a person had sinned, involving both natures, human and divine, then God himself would have sinned and ceased to be God. Yet that's clearly impossible because of the infinite holiness of God's nature. So here's my conclusion. So therefore, if we are asking, it was if it was actually possible for Jesus to have sinned, I believe it seems we must conclude that it was not possible for Jesus to ever sin. The union of his human nature and divine natures together in one person prevented him from sinning. Let me say that again. I want to be clear. We must conclude, I think from scriptural teaching, that it was not possible for Christ to sin. The union of his human and divine natures in one person prevented it. But it still raises two questions. Let's answer those. If he could not have sinned, how could the temptations of Jesus be real? How could they really be a struggle? Well, the example of the temptation to change the stones into bread, for example, is, I think, helpful for us to, to think about. Jesus had the ability, by the virtue of his divine nature, to perform the miracle. He could have done it. But if he had turned the stones into bread, it would no longer have been obeying in the strength of his human nature. He would have failed the test. Adam failed also. He would not have earned our salvation for us. Therefore, Jesus refused to rely on his divine nature to make obedience easier for him in his human nature. Let me say that again. Jesus refused to rely on his human nature to make obedience easier for him. In like manner, it seems appropriate, I think, to conclude that Jesus met every temptation to sin, not by his divine power, but on the strength of his human nature alone. Though, of course, it was not alone because Jesus, in exercising the kind of faith that humans should exercise, was perfectly depending upon the Father and the Holy Spirit at every moment. So I guess you might say the moral strength of Jesus' divine nature was there as sort of a, as a backstop, is what Wayne Grudem calls it, that would have prevented him from sinning in any case. Therefore, we can say it's not possible for him to sin. But he did not rely on the strength of his divine nature to make it easier to face the temptations. His refusal to turn the breads into stone at the beginning of his ministry clearly indicated this. 
but the divine nature, I guess you might say, was there in Jesus to prevent him from even acting on the human nature. So I think the temptations were real, but Jesus did not have the possibility of sinning. Now, one other thought, and we'll get to the second question. Many theologians have pointed out that only he who successfully resists the temptation to the end most fully feels the force of that temptation. Just as a champion weightlifter who lifts and holds over his head the heaviest weight in the contest, he feels the force of it more than the one who tried it and dropped it. So any Christian who has successfully faced a temptation to the end knows it's far more difficult than giving in at once. So I believe with Jesus, every temptation he faced, he faced to the end, and he triumphed over it. So the temptations were real, and he didn't give in to them, so they were most real because he did not give in to them. But here's the second question. If Jesus did not even have the possibility of sinning, then what can we say about James 1.13 where it says God cannot be tempted with evil? What, how does that verse factor into the temptations in the wilderness? Well, it seems that this is one of a, a number of things that we must affirm to be true of Jesus' nature, but not of his, of his divine nature, but not of his human nature. His divine nature could, could not be tempted with evil. We know that. But his human nature could be tempted and was tempted. How these two natures unite in one person in facing temptations, we don't know because the Bible does not clearly explain that to us. But this distinction between what is true of one nature and what is true of another nature is an example, I believe, of statements that, that, the, that the Bible makes requiring us to simply believe them. Now, Jesus, of course, human nature, divine nature, he could not be tempted in his divine nature, could in his human, and did not give in then to sin whatsoever. But I do believe Jesus did not have the possibility of even sinning. Now, a couple other thoughts, and we will conclude uh, this podcast on the humanity of Christ, and we'll move on to, to Truth 204 and to the deity of Christ next week. First of all, why was Jesus' full humanity necessary? One other, uh, two, two other questions for us to consider, and this is the first one. Why was it even necessary for Jesus to be fully human? Well, whenever John wrote his first epistle, First John, there was a heretical teaching, a false teaching, circulating in the early church that basically said Jesus was not a real human being. He was divine, but he was not fully human. And this false teaching became known as doceticism. It comes from the Greek word dokio, meaning to appear or to seem. So in other words, this teaching said Jesus appeared to be a man, but he really wasn't. He looked like a man, but if you were to pet him on the back, your hand would go right through his back. And you try to shake his hand, your hand would go right through his body. He appeared to be human, but he wasn't. This is a false teaching in the early church when John wrote 1 John, known as doceticism. And this false teaching was such a serious denial of the truth about Christ 
that John said it was a doctrine of Antichrist. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he, he wrote, John said, By this you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh, every spirit that does, is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus came in the flesh is not from God, it is the spirit of Antichrist. So the apostle John understood that to, de to deny Jesus true humanity was to deny something at the very heart of Christianity, the very heart of what we believe. So folks, never discount the humanity of Jesus. I said a couple of podcasts ago, I've taught systematic theology for a number of years and it has been my experience that most Christians have more of a problem with Jesus being human than they do Jesus being God. But folks, it is vitally important that we, that we fully affirm both. Jesus was fully human. We need him to be human because he's like us taking our place. And yes, we need him to be God, to be our savior of our sins as well. But do not, do not discount his humanity. Now, why do we need Jesus to be fully human? Why was that necessary? Well, look at several reasons. One is representative obedience. Jesus was our representative and obeyed for us when Adam had failed to disobey, diso, diso, uh, failed the Lord and disobeyed. So Jesus is our second Adam. He got it right where Adam failed, and he is our representative obedience. But a second reason is full humanity is necessary is because Jesus was a substitute sacrifice. If Jesus had not been a man, he could not have died in our place. He could not have paid the penalty that was due to me and due to you. And the author of Hebrews tells us that. He tells us, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so we might become a merciful and so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. But here's the third reason Jesus had to be human. To be the one mediator between God and humanity. Because you see, we were alienated from God by sin. We needed somebody to come between God and us to bring us back. And that's why Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God, one mediator between God and man, men, the man, Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't say the God Christ Jesus, but the man, Christ Jesus. We needed him to be our mediator between God and us. But here's another reason, a fourth reason, his full humanity was necessary to fulfill God's original purpose for mankind to rule over creation. God put mankind on the earth to subdue it and rule over it as God's representatives, but mankind did not fulfill that purpose and fell into sin. So the author of Hebrews realizes God intended everything to be in subjection to man, but he does admit in Hebrews 2.8, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to mankind. But when Jesus came as a man, he was able to obey God and thereby have the right to rule over creation as a 
man is what we're told in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But here's the fifth reason it's important that Jesus was fully human. To be our example and to be our pattern in life. 1 John 2, 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. And that reminds us that we are to walk as Christ walked. We'll appear as He appears one day in heaven. 1 John 3 verses 2 and 3 tell us. But we should walk as He walked while we're here on this earth, as Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3.18, transformed into the same image of Christ. And then finally, why is it important that Jesus was fully human to sympathize as our high priest. Once again, the author of Hebrews reminds us, because Jesus himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If Jesus had been a man, he would not have been able to know by experience what we go through in our temptations and struggle in this life. But because he lived as a man, He's able to sympathize, folks, with what you go through, with what I go through. He sympathizes as our high priest. All right, one other thought and we'll close. There are some people, as we wrap up the humanity of Christ, and there's a lot more to talk about on this. We're just, we're just kind of doing it in an abbreviated fashion, I guess you might say, in these podcasts, and maybe whet your appetite for further study into different aspects of systematic theology. But as we close this portion of the humanity of Christ, I want us to go into one more thought, and that is there are some theologians who believe this. Some theologians believe Jesus will be a man forever throughout eternity in heaven. Now let me explain. Some people believe that Jesus did not give up his human nature after his death and resurrection that he took his human nature with him to heaven and he'll forever be a man and a God, a man and God both together to, in, in heaven. Now, why do they believe this? Well, look at some of the reasons, look at some of the reasons why they would. First of all, if you remember after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples as a man with scars of the nail prints in his hands. John 20 tells us that. Luke 24, 39, Jesus said, I have flesh and bones, and I'm eating food before you. So he looked human, appeared human. Later, when Jesus was talking with his disciples, he was taken up into heaven, still in his resurrected body. And the two angels promised the disciples, as they watched him going to heaven, that Jesus would return in the same way. Acts 1.11 says, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go. Same way. They saw him go as God and man. So will they see him return as both God and man? Let's go a little further to Acts 7. Stephen gazed into heaven and saw Jesus. And he described him as, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He didn't say, I see the Son of God. He said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Go a little further. Acts chapter 9. 
Jesus appeared to Saul on the Damascus Road. Later became Paul. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. An appearance that Paul later coupled with the resurrection appearances of Christ to tell others. 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Corinthians 15. Go a little bit further. John's vision and revelation. Jesus still appears in Revelation 1.13, quote, as one like a son of man. John looked into heaven, saw Jesus, and described him as one, not as the, like the son of God, but one as like the son of man. It's interesting. Though he's filled with great glory, great power, his appearance has called John to fall at his feet in awe. And he promised Jesus one day to drink wine with his disciples in the Father's kingdom, Matthew 26, 29, and invites us to a great marriage supper in heaven, Revelation 19, 9. So Jesus, some say because of these passages after he resurrected, will continue forever in both offices as a human, as divine, and continue in his offices as prophet, priest, and king, forever and ever, all carried out by the virtue of the fact Jesus is both God and man. Well, it's been interesting to talk through and think through some of these concepts on the humanity of Jesus today. Hope you've enjoyed our time together. Join us next week as we begin looking at the deity of Christ. God bless you. Have a good week.